Sometimes things aren't quite as they seem. Sometimes things, when you have a closer look, uh, they're more impressive than they first seem. About 10 years ago, a family in New Jersey, in America, was dealing with a basement full of stuff from a family member who'd passed away. Uh, The person must have been pretty well off because they got an auction house to help clear out the basement. Uh, For auctioneers, I reckon they must love this kind of thing. It's it's like a treasure hunt or fossicking. You never know what you might find and how much it might be worth. And in this basement were some nice uh, bits of furniture, some artwork. But of course, loads of junk, things that might be sentimental but not worth anything to anyone else. As the auctioneers went through the basement, that's what they thought of this painting. Uh, Nothing special. It's about this big, 20 centimetres across. The frame was plain. Uh, When you turn it over, look at the back, it was cracked and damaged. And at first the auctioneers thought, oh, it looks a bit old, so maybe it might sell for a couple hundred bucks, nothing much. When they took it, though, to their auction house and they looked closer and they got expert eyes to look at it, who could see past the frame and the size, they realised this is a masterpiece. It's a Rembrandt. And it ended up selling for about a million US dollars, which is about infinity Australian dollars, I think. Uh, Sometimes there's more than first meets the eye. Sometimes things are unimpressive at first, but they prove to be valuable, special, uh, significant. Uh, There are moments in Jesus' life that are like this. At first blush, they're strange, unimpressive, but when you look more closely, uh, look with the right eyes, uh, they make all the difference in the world. At the start of the week that would prove to be the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus and his followers, they went to Jerusalem. Uh, They were joining uh, a massive crowd going to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover is the annual Jewish festival celebrating the Exodus, celebrating that time, that moment when God rescued his people, brought them through the Red Sea and eventually into the Promised Land, rescuing them from slavery to the mighty Egyptian uh, empire and their Pharaoh. And so Jesus and his followers are heading up to Jerusalem with this crowd. But on this journey, pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Jesus' followers and some in the crowd have extra anticipation. They're not just looking back to God's rescue through Moses. They've got some expectation around Jesus. Have a listen to how John records it in his biography of Jesus. It's got up on the screen, John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Some in the crowd go out to meet Jesus. They come to him singing ancient Jewish songs of praise and as they're singing, John makes a point. He he moves our eyes from the crowd to see this man on a donkey, a young donkey riding into Jerusalem. All four Gospels record this event of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. They make a point of it. The other three Gospels tell us about the strange way the donkey was acquired, but not John. He focuses our eyes to the man on the donkey. 
He's saying, look at this man on a donkey. Why? At the end of that week, after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey, John remembers and records Jesus' dying moments. He keeps our eyes fixed on this man on a cross. So we're in John chapter 19 now. At the start of the chapter, we see Jesus torturous flogging. We hear the mockery mockery of the soldiers and the insistence of the Jewish leaders begging for blood. And after this, John fixes our eyes on the man on the cross. Let's hear and see. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to be over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. Look at this man on a cross, crucified, crucified, crucified. In this short account, the words used again and again. To ancient ears, nothing more need to be said. Every time you hear the words, you see the nails. You feel the agony, the shame, the dehumanization. And despite the horror of this scene, a multilingual, multi-ethnic crowd comes to look at this man on a cross, Aramaic, Latin, Greek. And as he hangs on the cross, they watch him die. Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Look at this man on the cross. What's going on? For those looking on, this was nothing noteworthy. Hundreds of thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. It's horrific, but not special. But for those with eyes to see, if you understand what's going on behind the scenes, and this is what gets us to Zechariah, for those if you've got eyes to see, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Now we skipped over this before, but when we were back in John 12, But we're told to look at this man on a donkey, but John tells us why. He quotes an ancient prophecy, a word God gave Zechariah hundreds of years before Jesus. So John 12, 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Daughter Zion? It's another name for Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem, same place. The word daughter, it's about the people of Jerusalem. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, as John says, look at this man on a donkey, behind the scene he's saying, look, Zechariah's prophecy is happening. And we've been working through the book of Zechariah last term. God willing, we'll finish it over the next couple of weeks. God's word came to Zechariah in a time of hope and disappointment. It was a time of hope because what had been the day of small things, to quote Zechariah 4, the day of small things was now blossoming as the temple of Jerusalem in Jerusalem was was rebuilt. But there's disappointment because there's no king. There's a temple to worship God in, to offer sacrifices, to make atonement. There's no king on David's throne. 
Darius, the Persian emperor, is king over God's people. And even though Darius provided materials and safety to rebuild the temple, he's no son of David. He's pagan. He's a pagan. He worships idols. He is not the Messiah. There's disappointment because there's no king on David's throne. There's also disappointment because God's enemies have not gone away. Even with Darius's protection, God's people are constantly under threat. And it's into this context that God's word comes to Zechariah. It's into this context that Zechariah 9 and 10 is written, the chapters where we find the prophecy of the lowly king coming. So I hope you've got Zechariah 9 still open because that's where we're going to spend some time now. Zechariah 9 begins with a picture of God the warrior defeating his enemies. It's both a promise and a warning. So it's a warning. Have a look at verse 3. Verse 3, God promises judgment will come on Tyre. So Zechariah 9.3, verse 3. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea and she will be consumed by fire. Tyre was an island city, a fortress north of Israel in Phoenicia. We're off the coast, technically, of Phoenicia. God's promise, the enemy of his people is going to be destroyed, consumed by fire. In Zechariah's days, these words would have sounded impossible. In Tyre, gold was like dust. Tyre was a fortress built on an island. The Babylonians tried for 13 years, laid siege to weaken it, but there's no record that they defeated it. They had military power, wealth to boot, Zechariah can't be serious, like destroy, consume by, how are you going to burn an island fortress to the ground? You've got to be, you've got to be kidding yourself there, Zechariah. But only a few hundred years later, 332 BC, God made good as Alexander the Great conquered Tyre. Zechariah 9 is a warning to Tyre and other peoples mentioned in the chapter, but it's, it's not actually really a warning to them. I don't think the people of Tyre ever read this prophecy. It's a promise, a promise to God's people that God will do justice and defeat and punish the wicked people. Uh, These promises and warnings, they continue in chapter 9, but there's this twist in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth, quite graphic. It's, It's another one of those warning promises, but listen to this. Verse 7 Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. This is astounding. So yes, God's promising to judge his enemies. He's also promising to enfold the nations into his people. We've got to realize all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, And it gets clearer and clearer as the story goes on. The definition of God's people keeps growing. Yes, it's about Abraham and his family, but here, Zechariah 9, those who were once outside, those who were once enemies, become a tribe of Israel. They're grafted into God's people. The biblical definition of Judah, of God's people, Zechariah is saying God says it's got nothing to do with ethnicity or race, Because even those who were once God's enemies will become one of the clans of Israel. And this is important because this verse 
Verse 7 is what makes Zechariah 9 and 10 and the promises of these chapters about us. Yes, it's about Israel, but it's about us too. They are for all of God's people as we believe in Israel's God. So we've heard these promise warnings in a context of hope and disappointment. God hasn't finished. God will punish his enemies and bring justice for his people. But even more, the definition, the boundaries of God's people is now going to include those who were once enemies. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? It's a picture of God fighting as a warrior for his people. And in this picture of a warrior God, we are told to look at a man on a donkey. A lowly king comes, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, this is a weird king. This is a weird king. He's righteous, but so why is he lowly? If he's victorious, why is he riding on a a foal, a young donkey? Surely he should be riding with pride, mounted on a mighty steed. This is a weird king. It is strange that a lowly king coming into Jerusalem should make the inhabitants of Jerusalem rejoice and sing. But it gets even weirder. You think that's weird? Because this lowly king on a donkey, read into verse 10, he's not just king of Judah, but king of the world. Verse 10, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and their war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He, the king on the donkey, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This man on the donkey, he's not just going to be king of Jerusalem. He's not just going to rule a bit of dirt in the Middle East. But from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, the whole world ruled by this man, this king on a donkey. It is weird. This prophecy is weird. Though I suppose we're used to that in Zechariah. Uh, The rest of chapters 9 and 10 Uh, Paint a picture of what life will be like when this lowly king comes. So have a look at verse 16. God will save his people. They'll be radiant like sparkling jewels. Verse 16, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. The days of this king will be like rain falling on dry, dusty ground. So have a listen to chapter 10, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and plants of the field to everyone. Uh, Who does God give rain to? All people, everyone, once again, the definition of God's people has blasted open to include the whole world, which is why when God gathers his people, you won't be able to count them. Verse 8, I will signal for them and gather them in. Surely I will redeem them. They will be as numerous as before. So the promise is uh, when God's lowly kings come, it's going to be abundance, prosperity, not famine anymore. There's going to be loads of people. It's going to be just like the Exodus all over again. Just as God shamed the superpower of Moses' day, defeating Pharaoh using a bloke who's got a stick, 
God promises he's going to defeat all the superpowers of the world through this lowly man on a donkey. Have a listen to verse 10. The chapter 10 now and verse 10. I'll bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I'll bring them to Gilead and Lebanon and there will not be room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. Assyria's pride will be brought down and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord and in his name they will live securely, declares the Lord. Zechariah 9 and 10, uh, it's an amazing picture of God's salvation and rescue. But how? How on earth can a lowly king on a donkey achieve all this? And I want us to think about our situation. Here we are. We are thousands of years after Zechariah. Do you you feel like God's kept his promise? I suppose, well, Assyria. Anyone here afraid of Assyria? I suppose, okay, so Assyria is not a threat, but... God's people today feel discouraged and disappointed. We feel like the powers and pride of the world has the upper hand. Let's give up. God hasn't kept his promise. What's the point? Is God really able to bring down their pride and power? When you look at our church, when you look at churches around Australia, things are pretty unimpressive. But Zechariah encourages us to look again. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, the crowds rejoiced, but, but I don't think they had a clue what was going on. They, they did not see Jesus as the lowly king of Zechariah. We, we know for sure Jesus' disciples, they had no idea what was going on. John tells us after he quotes Zechariah 9, telling us to look at this man on the donkey, he says look, the disciples had no idea what was going on. Uh, verse 16, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? Now, plenty of lowly men had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so the disciples didn't understand what they were looking at. To them it seemed normal, weird, unimpressive. But John says after Jesus was glorified, they looked again, they had new eyes. And they saw the astounding value and significance of what had happened that day. But I want us to dig into this word glorified just a little bit. Think about all the things we we saw in Zechariah 9 and 10. The enemies of God consumed by fire. The people of God streaming in, sparkling like jewels. That to me sounds like glory, doesn't it? That's glorious. So what John says here kind of doesn't make much sense, does it? We read Zechariah's promises. We go, come on, you've got to be kidding yourself, Zechariah. We are weak and impoverished. And here's John saying that glorified is in the past tense, but Zechariah sounds like it's still to come. What's going on? Does this mean that Jesus has already been glorified? Is that what John is saying? That glory has already happened? And so does that mean we should see all of Zechariah 9 and 10 as something that has either happened or is happening? Do you get the question? If glory has already come, if Jesus is already glorified, What's the deal with Zechariah 9 and 10? Is is it being kept or has God broken his promise? Well, a few sentences later in John chapter 12, after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey, he's approached by some Greeks. They want to see Jesus. And if you've got the eyes of Zechariah 9 and 10, this should make us look. Not only the man on the donkey, but people from the nations coming to the king on donkey. And when they come, Jesus 
makes it clear. He explains, he teaches them and us what his glory, what it means for him to be glorified. Because when we look at the man on the cross, this is his glory. Listen to Jesus. The hour has come for you. Sorry, sorry, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No! It was for this very reason I came to this hour. When is Jesus glorified? What is this, his hour? It's when a kernel falls to the ground and dies. The man on the cross is the glorification of Jesus. The cross is his victory, not his shame. How is the cross the glory of Christ? It's because on the cross, Jesus defeats our enemies of sin and the devil as he makes, uh, as he pays the price for sin and wins forgiveness for his people, dying the death we deserve to die, the righteous one dying in the place of his unrighteous enemies, that is his glory. And because as this one grain of wheat dies, he produces many seeds. A great harvest throughout time and around the world, people of every nation coming to faith and finding salvation in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus is glorified as he wins salvation for all his people. Friends, what does this mean to you? If you're with us today and you're not a believer in Jesus, look to him. Although this man on a donkey, this man on a cross might not look like anything all that significant, something that's not all that valuable, I urge you, look closer. See behind the scenes. What might look ordinary is actually the glory of God and your salvation. You do not want to be part of the nations that are crushed by God. Look to Jesus and be saved as one of God's people. And church, what does this mean to us? We should be encouraged. There are things that make us feel weak and small, but since Jesus is glorified, the lowly king on the donkey has come. This means Jesus now reigns from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We are now part of his glorious people, clothed in his righteousness And we see Jesus reign right now, don't we? As people, as the gospel goes out throughout the whole world, as people hear the good news and are converted by God's spirit, as churches are planted and established throughout the earth. Jesus has come, he has been glorified, and so his kingdom will continue to stand and grow until he returns. So brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. See him and his lowly glory for what it really is, and be encouraged. Let's pray. Father God, open our eyes. We would see Jesus. Please help us see that Jesus is your glorified King, the one victorious and lowly, riding on a donkey. Strengthen and encourage us in the truth that in the cross, Christ is glorified, that on the cross it is finished, 
that our debt has been paid and our salvation has been won. Give us courage in this to proclaim Christ, to live for him, to find our hope and confidence in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.